Several years ago, I uh, read through a teen dystopian novel series called the Maze Runner series. Anybody else read the Maze Runner? Okay, a few, few of you. Great. Uh, the series title is, is based on the plotline of book one, uh, which centers on this gigantic and horrifying maze that the characters in the book try to escape. Uh, a group of teens live in this isolated glade, uh, surrounded by high stone walls, not knowing how they got there or why they're there, and the only way out is through the maze. Uh, during each day, designated runners run the maze looking for an exit, and, and they've got to return before nightfall back into the glade because if they're left out in the maze after nightfall, they risk being stung by a vicious griever, this nasty techno animal that roams the maze at, at nighttime. Uh, at the end of the book, the main character, Thomas, finally finds a way out of the maze only to discover that he... And the rest of the boys were part of a massive experiment designed to develop a cure for the pandemic brought on by a solar flare that ended civilization as we know it. It's just a delightful, uplifting read. You know, sometimes living in this day and age feels like running that maze. It's a constant experience of confusion and disorientation. Social norms and sexual mores have been changing and continue to morph at a dizzying speed in our culture. It used to be what happens in the bedroom stays in the bedroom. Now it's what happens in the bedroom should be celebrated in the streets and codified into laws and catechized into our children's education. Of course, all in the name of inclusion and diversity and tolerance. For us as Christians, it feels like the disorientation of the maze. Where in the world am I? What in the world is going on? How do I get out of here? And while I figure that out, how do I avoid the, the hazards of this strange new world for me and my family? Does anybody else feel like that? Beloved, the text that we're looking at together today in God's Word helps to give us a bird's eye view of the maze, as it were. You know, a, a maze or a, a labyrinth is only confusing at ground level. But from above, from the bird's eye, it makes sense. You can see the, the dead ends. You can see the connecting points that lead the way out. Well, in a similar way, Romans 1, 24 to 32, it lifts us out of the confusion and the disorientation, and it helps us to make sense of the depravity of our current society, as well as the, 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 the degeneration of every human society since mankind's fall into sin. It gives us a lens through which to look at the world. This text shows us that while things seem utterly chaotic from a human standpoint, that very moral chaos is evidence of God's activity in this world and letting sinful human beings have what they so desperately crave. And as we see things from a divine bird's eye perspective, this text equips us to respond in a way that glorifies God and magnifies our need for his son. So please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans 1. Romans 1, 24 through 32 is our text this morning. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked together at verses 18 to 23 of Romans 1, which begin Paul's argument about why a righteous standing before God can only be obtained through faith in Christ Jesus. Faith 
in Christ is humanity's only hope for eternal rescue because all humanity is under God's wrath. And Paul explained that this wrath of God is not unfair. It's not out of balance. It is just, Paul says, because despite the fact that God has revealed his eternal power and his divine nature in the things that he has made, mankind has responded to that revelation by suppressing this truth and keeping it from making any difference in our lives. In our idolatry, we worship the very things that should cause us to worship those things maker, right? Instead of praising and thanking God, we give the allegiance of our hearts to the things that God has made. And because of this, the scripture says we're without excuse. We are justly and rightly condemned by the judge of all the earth. It's not a pretty picture, is it? But this bad news about humanity, friends, is why the good news about Christ Jesus is so necessary and so beautiful. The darkness enhances the brightness of the light. We desperately need a rescuer. Verses 18 to 23 highlighted why God's wrath is revealed. Now in our text this morning, verses 24 to 32 showcase how God's wrath is revealed. How does God judge humanity? Well, I think the answer may surprise you. Let's read together, starting in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, here's the main idea of Romans 1, 24 to 32 that I pray will just kind of be the governing agenda, the main point of the sermon this morning. Here's the main idea. God actively judges disordered worship through our disordered lives and world. God actively judges disordered worship through our disordered lives and world. Friends, when you, when you envision God's judgment, what type of things come to your mind? Thunderbolts from heaven, right? Cataclysmic judgment. Well, we know that a great day of universal judgment for sin is indeed coming at the end of human history. The day of God's appointing. But that is not what Paul emphasizes here, is it? Instead, Paul draws our attention to the outworking of God's wrath during human history. And what Paul highlights isn't loud or cataclysmic at all, is it? Rather, it's quiet. It's imperceptible. 
It's surprising. God judges by simply handing sinners over to their own devices. God judges by giving idolaters what they want. And of course, most notably, what sinful humanity wants includes sexual sin. We want to indulge our sexual desires, which includes the abandoning of the creative norms for deviant sexual expression like homosexuality. Friends, today, instead of uh, kind of outlining the structure of the text like I normally do, what I'm going to do is simply try to drive home this main idea uh, that I listed just a second ago by showing how Paul kind of weaves this idea, this one idea throughout this section of text. And we're going to do so by looking at four progressive steps in Paul's mind that I think we we see over and over again. And then after doing that, I'm going to give you several points of application, specifically about how we should be thinking and living in light of our sexualized age, okay? So remember the main idea, God actively judges disordered worship through our disordered lives and world. Well, how do we see this in the text? What is the logical and kind of theological order to all of this? Step one, kind of the first governing thought in Paul's mind, number one, humanity exchanges the glory of God for images. You see that in verse 23, verse 25, verse 28. Okay? There are these three places in which Paul writes that, that God hands people over to their desires. And each time what grounds this handing over is human idolatry. So verse 24 starts, therefore, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Therefore simply means for this reason, right? Why did God give people up to impurity? It drives our gaze back to verses 21 to 23, doesn't it? For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, first of all, and then birds and animals and creeping things. Friends, at the very heart of the human condition, Paul diagnoses this this terrible, malignant exchange. It's not just that humanity fails to worship God. It's that we replace the worship of our creator with the worship of his creatures. We exchange the glory of God for pale reflections of his glory. We worship the image of, of ourselves primarily, but also stoop to give homage to things even lower than us as well. And tragically, we begin to resemble what we revere. We become what we worship. Our foolish hearts grow dark and our minds grow futile, just like our idols. When someone looks at a human being, they should be able to say, aha, I see a reflection of what God is like in that human being. Look at how these human beings shine with God's glory, so to speak. But tragically, because of original sin, we humans lack this type of glory. It's not that the image of God has been obliterated, but it has been severely defaced. You can just kind of imagine the intricate beauty of the Sistine Chapel covered by mildew and graffiti, right? Or a mirror that's shattered and splintered into a a million pieces. And you can kind of see something of God's reflection there but it's severely damaged. That's who we humans are in our sin. Rather rather than directing our energy and love and allegiance and worship upward to the creator, we direct those energies and loves and affections downward to God's creatures, especially to ourselves. 
Paul cycles back to this truth in verse 25 as a way to prove verse 24 and then ground verse 26. See that? It's kind of sandwiched there in the middle. Verse 24 uh, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up. So you can kind of see what Paul's doing, right? In verse 25, he's, he's double clicking on the point of verses 21 to 23. Friends, listen, the fundamental problem with humanity the fundamental problem that warrants God's judgment is not sexuality per se, but human idolatry. If you're going to drill down to the bottom of humanity's poison well from which all perversion and sin springs, there at the floor of the well, you will find the propensity in each one of us to worship something other than God. In verse 23, Paul talks about the tragic exchange of infinitely great glory for a, a cheap knockoff glory, you know, the Folkley glory. Anybody have fake Oakleys as a kid? Folkleys, okay? The cheap knockoff of Oakleys, okay? That's what he's talking about. Verse 25 uses that same trade-off language, only this time it's we exchange not just the glory of God, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. What truth? The truth that God, through the things he has made, is worthy of our worship. Instead, we've, we've handed it in for a lie. And it's the ultimate lie, isn't it? I mean, Satan ran the, the, the greatest and most successful misinformation campaign in human history. Right? We believed it hook, line, and sinker. The lie that created things are worthy of our worship. That the created things can satisfy our hearts like the creator can that they can give us life and joy and protection and salvation like our Creator can. I mean, what a tragic exchange. Paul says the same thing in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. If you were reading the Greek, you'd see that the word debased, translated there, and the word fit are from the same root Greek word. Because we humans looked at God and found him unfit or unworthy to worship, God gave us over to an unfit or a worthless mind. Friends, this passage is not primarily about homosexuality. That's one tragic outworking of God's judgment. The root issue, the biggest problem in the world today is our false worship. And that's why Paul says every one of us needs the gospel. Every one of us needs Jesus. We need someone to rescue us from the penalty of our idolatry and renew us back into God's image and make us true worshipers once again. We need the righteousness that only Jesus can provide us. So that's step one. That's step one. Humanity exchanges the glory of God for images. Step two. God in judgment gives humanity what it craves. Most notably, sexual sin. You see that in verse, verses 24, 26, and 28. Because of humanity's disordered worship, God gives us over to disordered lives in a disordered world. Every single perversion that exists in the world today is the result, the outworking of our perverted worship. Again, this, this verbiage, God gave them up. It just, it just reverberates like a drumbeat of death in this passage. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them up. Beloved, God is not an innocent bystander in his world. 
wringing his hands in worry because immoral things are developing all around us. It's not that the torrent of evil is rushing by God and he just kind of releases humanity's boat to slide away into that torrent. No, God doesn't just let the boat go. He pushes the boat downstream. This passage reveals that God is not passive in judgment. He is very much active. He actively gives humanity over to the cravings and desires that we want that elicit his judgment upon this world. But it's just like a, a just judge hands a prisoner over to the punishment that his crime has earned, so God hands sinners over to the soul shackling chains of ever increasing sin. And of course, the tip of the iceberg, exhibit A, of what God has given humanity over to is, of course, sexual sin. You can see right there in verse 24, where Paul paints with a broad brush of, of sexual immorality. God, God gives them over to impurity. You can see it there in verses 26 and 27, where, where Paul then colors in the sketch that he drew in verse 24 by talking about specifically the sin of homosexuality. This downward spiral of sexual sin does not stop with heterosexual lust, but it careens so far out of bounds to include that which is against nature itself, Paul says. But it's not just sexual sin, is it? Lest any of us try to think that we're somehow off the hook, that we're okay before God, Paul gives a laundry list. In verses 28 to 32 of the type of disordered lives and disintegrating society that results from our disordered worship, from our actions, to our words, to our responses, to even our approach to our families. Verse 29 says we humans are filled, we're filled to the brim with all manner of unrighteousness. So that's the second operating principle in Paul's mind in this passage. God actively judges human idolatry by giving us over to our desires. Again, he lets us have what we want. And I think this is super helpful, isn't it, friends, to understanding the wickedness of our world and our society. You would be hard-pressed to look around our society today and around our world and not think, to, my goodness, we are under God's hand of judgment, aren't we? Not every person is as bad as they could be thanks to God's common grace. But friends, we ought not be surprised by unrestrained evil in our world and in our society and in our cultural systems. This world and those who live in it are under God's judgment. And their only hope, our only hope, is a rescuer to forgive and set us free from our bondage to our idolatry. So step one. Step one, humanity exchanges the glory of God for images. Step two, God in judgment gives humanity what it craves, most notably sexual sin. Step three, homosexuality is a poignant dramatization, a poignant acting out of this tragic exchange. Homosexuality is a poignant dramatization of this tragic exchange. Let's start reading again in verse 26. For this reason, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Again, just like verse 24, friends, God gives humanity what we want. And what is one of the things that humanity craves in our idolatry? He tells us. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So I I think it's crystal clear. You can see this one-to-one correlation between idolatry and homosexuality with the word exchanged, can't you? See that? Humanity exchanges the glory of God for a lesser glory. It exchanges the truth of God for a lie. And now as a result, what happens? The women exchange natural sexual relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise do the same. Friends, I don't, I don't think Paul lists homosexuality here to put it at the top of the sin pyramid. That's not why he does that. It's not that he thinks of homosexuality as the very top of the food chain of evil. No, I don't think that's what he's doing. Rather, he, he kind of riffs on this particular type of sexual sin because homosexuality is a poignant, vivid enacting of human idolatry in the sexual realm. It's a poignant, vivid enacting of human idolatry in the sexual realm. What have we done in idolatry? We've turned from worshiping our God in whose likeness we are made, yet someone so glorious as entirely different from us to worshiping ourselves. We've traded in the worship of the utterly other for worship of the utterly same. Likewise, how has God fashioned us as his image bearers? How did he create us to image his glory? Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Friends, God created mankind, humanity, as the pinnacle of his creation to image him in two distinct sexes, male and female. Male and female, equal glory, equal dignity, equal worth, but utterly different. You keep reading in chapter 2, and you learn that these same but different image bearers fit each other. They complement each other in their differences, even biologically and sexually. So that when man and woman come together in marriage, they become one flesh in the, 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 dramatiz- the dramatizing or the enacting of the same but different union in their sexual relationship. A relationship, by the way, that allows humanity to be fruitful and multiply. This is how God designed it from the beginning. Sex is designed for God's glory and our joy and our multiplying within heterosexual monogamous marriage. So, beloved, do you see why Paul goes here to homosexuality? If there's ever a dramatizing of our worship of self in sexuality, it's homosexuality, where we abandon the same but different for the same but same. We worship someone the same as us, and those who practice homosexuality sleep with someone the same as them. Does that mean that that other types of sexual sin aren't also evidences of idolatry? Of course not. Think about the hookup culture. Think about adultery. Think about pornography. All connected to false worship. But friends, heterosexual sin doesn't dramatize the idolatry of the self. It doesn't dramatize the idolatry of 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 the same like homosexuality does. And heterosexual sin doesn't cut across the grain of God's creative intent and order to the degree that homosexuality and transgenderism do. 
By the way, when Paul writes that, that the men and women who participate in homosexuality receive in themselves the due penalty for their error, I, I think he's talking about the sinful act itself. He's not talking about some other result of, of homosexuality like some disease or some psychological disorder or anything like that. The act itself is the penalty of their error. The error being humanity's idolatry. They receive in themselves, in the very act, the penalty for their error. Now, before we move on, let me just say that because of the acceptance of homosexuality in our culture, some theologians have tried to say that, that Paul here is not talking about homosexual desire and behavior in the main, that kind of as a, as a big category. Regular, rather, he's talking about particular subsets of homosexual behavior. Maybe the most popular reframing of this text is something like this. When Paul describes homosexuality as unnatural or against nature, he's talking about heterosexual people doing what is unnatural to them, and so going against their personal nature. And as the line of thinking goes, homosexuality is, is, is natural to those with, with gay orientation, so therefore this, this text does not apply to them. Does that make sense? But friends, nature here does not mean my nature. Natural here doesn't mean what feels or seems natural to me. To act against nature is to violate the order that God established when he created the world. To go against nature isn't about conflicting with my personal psychology, but rebelling against God's creative intention. So again, why does Paul hone in on homosexuality here? It's not that it's at the top of the sin pyramid. It's because homosexuality is a poignant dramatization of the tragic exchange, the worship of the other for the same that we've made in our idolatry. Step four, humanity practices and approves of the very things they know warrant God's judgment. What is controlling Paul's thought? What is kind of his operating steps? Well, here's the last one. I don't think there's really much need to be said. It's very self-explanatory. The final outworking of idolatry and God's judgment is verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You know what's startling here, friends, is that Paul primarily has in mind the Gentile world when listing homosexuality and these type of sexual sins. But the Gentiles did not have Moses' law, right? Did not have the Mosaic law. We're not under the Mosaic law. So the righteous decree by which they're held into account, is not the law of Moses. He's talking about the law knit into the fabric of people's consciences. People know innately, friends, whether it's homosexuality or other sins, people know innately that their wickedness is indeed wicked and worthy of death. Their consciences bear witness. But terrifyingly, in our rebellion, we plow on anyway. We put our conscience back to sleep by not only doing the sins listed here that are worthy of God's judgment, but by also granting approval and affirmation and celebration of those who commit them in society. Friends, does that sound familiar? It's the world we're living in. In our remaining time this morning, I want us to give, a, give several applications. In fact, eight applications. Okay, eight applications of how we as Christians should be thinking and operating in this perversely sexualized age. 
I also have some application for those here who may be struggling with homosexual desires and temptations, even those maybe who are given over to it. Eight points, okay? So buckle up. Here we go. Number one, recover the intrinsic goodness of God's design and word. Friends, we must recover as Christians the intrinsic goodness of God's design in his word. God's design is not something to be blushed at or ashamed of. His creative purpose and his commands that then correspond to that purpose aren't designed only to bring him glory, but are the very expression of his goodness and his kindness to us. Because we have to say then that the things like the male-female binary and heterosexual monogamous sex within marriage is designed by our creator for maximum human flourishing. Our God is not a prude. Sex is his idea. It's his creation. God created sex not only to be functional, but to be pleasurable. God also created sex to picture something far more profound than the act itself. Friends, the sexual union of a man and his wife pictures the very covenant love of our God and his people. It's the dramatizing of a God who passionately pursues and wins and saves his bride through the death of his son and then brings us into a relationship of unhindered, unashamed intimacy and love. That's what sex is about. Homosexual sex is the dramatizing of idolatry, but monogamous heterosexual sex and marriage is the dramatizing of God's covenant love in Christ Jesus. Beloved, don't believe the world's lies about what is good. Don't let entertainment and music and the culture makers of our day shape your idea of what you should crave, what you should want. Satan will do his best to make you feel like you are missing out on something amazing by heeding God's word and staying within the confines of his design. But friends, he has literally been running that play in the playbook since Genesis 3 in the garden. Romans 1 tells us otherwise. The the delights of the feast of sin will turn to ash in sinners' mouths on the last day. We need to take God at his word. Not only is his way right, but it's also beautiful and best. Parents, we ought to teach our kids early and often about the goodness of God's design both in creating us male and female, and also about the goodness of God's design for marriage. Parents, do not let the world catechize your kids first and tell them a different story. We've got to be proactive, don't we? We've got to be discipling our kids with God's story for his world so that when they hear the competing fable that the world tells them, they can tell, hey, that's a counterfeit story. That doesn't make sense because they've already latched on to what is true and good and right. Friends, in our dealing with our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, the mantras we used to use will not cut it. It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, will not work, friends. That ship sailed a long time ago. We are now living in verse 32. Our culture is driven to approve and celebrate these things. Silly mantras like that will not cause your LGBTQ plus friend to pause and consider the claims of Scripture. Oh, wow, look at that little jingle. No. But friends, a competing and beautiful vision 
of the world that God has made just might. Capturing their gaze with the beauty and grace of a God who designed sex and sexuality to picture his goodness and covenant love in Christ is the only way to capture their attention. As Christians, we also need to recover a right theology of the body. Our bodies are not so cheap that we can use them and change them at our whims to indulge ourselves or to become what we want to be. Our bodies are not containers that the, that the true us happen to inhabit and animate. No, our bodies are integral to the, our fundamental identity as created by God. God intends for us to flourish according to his design, even in the way that we think about and use our bodies. His creative purposes are intrinsically good. Number two, number two, your feelings and desires are not king. Your feelings and desires are not king. One of the most insidious lies of the last century is that a person's identity is defined by his or her sexuality. To say, I'm gay, is not a comment about preference or desires, about, but about, to many people, about fundamental personhood. And, and that's really part of a larger shift that's taken place over the past several centuries in which the authenticity of inner feelings grow to have more authority than transcendent truth. No longer do natural and supernatural laws govern how many conceive of themselves. Now, the dominant way to understand oneself is in terms of how you feel. Let me say it again. No longer do natural and supernatural laws govern how many conceive of themselves. Now, the dominant way to understand oneself is in terms of how one feels. Life is about finding out who you are and what you want and then expressing the real you. The self, the self, the real me, has been psychologized, to use Carl Truman's Phrase And now the, the psychologized self in the 20, 20th and 21st centuries has now become sexualized. What I feel about my sexuality, about my sexual orientation, about my gender identity is the defining truth about me. After all, for a lot of people, their, their sexual feelings, let's, we need to be honest about this, okay, as Christians, their sexual feelings and their desires aren't something they feel like they chose, Many will tell you that their earliest sexual attractions were toward the same sex. That's why they say, this is part of who I am. I've always been this way. Hate the sin and love the sinner makes total sense to us as Christians, but it's utterly reprehensible to the LGBTQ plus community. Why? Because they've attached sexuality to the core of who they are. To disaffirm their sexuality preferences and orientation is to attack their central identity, so they think. But friends, this, this modern understanding of expressive individualism is just a repackaging of human idolatry that we've been looking at over the past couple of sermons. Our fundamental identity as humans is not grounded in our feelings or our desires or our sexuality. Our fundamental identity as human beings, is grounded in our God. We are created male and female in his image to reflect his glory according to his good design. But here's the thing. 
We've all rebelled, haven't we? We've all rebelled against our good father. And so the second facet of our basic human identity is not merely as created creatures, but as sinners before God. As Christians, we understand that the tentacles of sin and the curse extend far past choices that we make in our adolescent and adult lives. Sin and the brokenness of the curse, it warps our DNA, it warps our hormones, it warps our psyche and our thoughts and our feelings. So when a gay or lesbian person says, I was born this way, a Christian can affirm, yes, we were all born in sin. But just because something feels innate and natural to us does not justify that thing as pleasing to God. Feelings and desires are not king. Apart from the grace of God in Christ, we are all children of wrath. We all carry out the desires of the flesh and of the mind set against God. So friends, here's where the gospel comes in. Here's where the gospel comes in and it affects a sea change in our identifying the true us. God extends his mercy in Christ so that we might no longer be identified by our rebellion and judgment, no longer by the autonomy that enslaved us, but through the righteousness of Jesus. For those who are united to Jesus by faith, his perfect record becomes ours. His life defines us, right? His love controls us. His mercy forgives us. His spirit transforms us. The real you is not defined by your feelings or your subjective desires, but by your relationship to God in Christ. We are children of God through the love of Christ Jesus. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, as one who's turned from your sin to Jesus by faith, and you wrestle with same-sex desires and and wrestle with a pattern of temptations in the same-sex realm, friend, let me assure you, As much as I would exhort you to wage war on your sinful desires, like I would urge and exhort anyone with heterosexual lusts, friend, you are not defined by your sexual inclinations or temptations. You are defined by your connection to Jesus. Friends, that ought to keep you from being despondent about the presence of homosexual temptation in your life. Your temptations in this area do not define you any any more than someone who wrestles with anger or worry or heterosexual lust. Put your sinful desires to death. Yes, absolutely, but don't despair. You are in Christ. And at the same time, knowing your identity is in Jesus helps us guard against the pride of identifying ourselves through the lens of sexual temptations or orientation. The core of who you are is not your sexuality. Saying, I'm a gay Christian, as a kind of a badge of honor, is incongruent with what the Scripture teaches about our new status in Christ. We're not defined by our sin. We're not defined by our sexuality. We are defined by our relationship to God as His child in Christ. So don't identify yourself by your feelings or your desires or your pattern of temptations. Identify yourself by your relationship to God in Christ. Walk in light of that. Wage war on your sin and on your desires because God loves you and because Christ died to set you free. Number three, God in Christ forgives homosexual sin. Praise God. God in Christ forgives homosexual sin. Beloved, homosexual desire and behavior is not the unpardonable sin. 
Jesus didn't die on the cross to rescue humanity from all sin, but, but that one. Like Jesus rose from the dead, but whoops, our sexual sin was so powerful that it's still back in the grave. No, God mercifully forgives all rebellion and all transgression, including homosexuality, including transgenderism. You know how I know? Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. From the vilest sinner who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. And not only pardon, but release from the dominating shackles of sin and the hope of being renewed back into Christ's image. Of having our, our broken sexuality put back together again of having a life that pleases God through the power of His Spirit. There is hope of forgiveness for the LGBTQ plus community. I thought I would get amen on that. Right? There is hope. There is real living hope of forgiveness and cleansing and rescue. Amen. amen. Why? Because our King satisfied the wrath of God for all who would turn from their sin and trust in Him. On the cross, God's justice was executed on the sinless one so that sinners, heterosexual sinners, homosexual sinners might be reconciled to God through him. God in Christ forgives your sin, your homosexual sin included. Number four, but you must repent of it. But you must repent of it. Friends, forgiveness of sin is always tied to repentance from sin. Always. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, friends, although God's grace in Christ is free, it will cost you your life. You say, John, it sounds like you want me to abandon the, the core of who I am to follow Jesus. Well, friends, first of all, I've tried to lay a theological grenade to that type of thinking earlier, but I, I get it. I grant that you think of yourself that way, your sexuality defining the core of who you are. So yes, Jesus is calling you and me and all of us to walk away from any self-identity that's shaped by sin because it only leads to death. In a sense, it's like Jesus is saying, lose your false self so that you can find your true self and therefore true life in me. Let Jesus' word sink in. If you lose your life for his sake, you will find it. You will lose the mirage and you will gain the real thing. The way is hard, but it is so worth it. Repent of your sin. Number five, now back to Christians. Beloved, do not affirm or celebrate or become desensitized to the evidence of God's judgment. Do not affirm, celebrate, or become desensitized to the evidence of God's judgment. You know, more and more, our culture is putting pressure on Christians to just get in line with the sexual agenda. 
Think about the hockey player a few weeks ago who refused to wear the, the rainbow patch or the rainbow numbers or whatever it was on his jersey for religious purposes. And I, I have no idea if that Russian player is a, is a professing Christian or not. But man, did you see the, the news and the media? They just attacked the guy and belittled the guy mercilessly. Whether it's celebrating Pride Month at work or attending the the wedding of a gay friend or family member or the demand the to use certain pronouns when referring to, to someone, there's just no shortage of situations in which Christians are forced to run the gauntlet of faithfulness. Even for our children. I mean, I heard about a church member's, I think, fourth grade daughter called a homophobe in one of our good schools in the Valley recently just because she said we're Christians and homosexuality is wrong. Fourth grade, what are you, a homophobe? My parents are Christians too. They say it's okay. Middle schoolers bullied and losing friendships because of their faithfulness to the biblical sexual ethic. Holding a biblical sexual ethic is cast as antiquated and old-fashioned at best and bigoted and spiteful at worst. I would just encourage you, friends, let Romans 1, 24 to 32 put steel in your spine. You dare not affirm or celebrate the things that evidence God's judgment in his world. They may tell us we're on the wrong side of history, but we actually know the theological irony of that statement. The last day is coming. Don't capitulate or cower in fear. Be bold with the truth and gracious in your spirit and serve the Lord Christ faithfully, even in this area. It may be that suffering is coming for Christians and churches who hold a biblical sexual ethic. Beloved, I promise you, God will strengthen us and he will protect his own as we're faithful to him. For our church, my guess is that the greatest danger of, for our church here at Redeeming Grace isn't to affirm or celebrate homosexuality so much as become desensitized to it. Uh, anymore, it fills the content of movies and music and shows, even in kids' programming. Oh, beloved, don't let your conscience become calloused to the sexual sins, heterosexual or homosexual, that are under God's wrath. Parents, I would encourage you to investigate the content of every show and movie your child watches. can't say that thus saith the Lord. But boy, does that seem like an evident wisdom principle in this day and age. Don't let the agendas of this sinful age become normal to your five-year-old. It's going to be challenging enough to raise our kid in Babylon. Let's not let Babylon catechize them insidiously in the entertainment and music that we let them watch without any guardrails or accountability. Number six, remember your own sin. Number six, remember your own sin. Brothers and sisters, it would be easy in a sermon like this to do a couple things. First, it would be easy to let this type of sermon be a raw, raw message for truth. And there's no question we ought to be a people governed by truth. But just as much as we ought to be controlled by God's truth, we ought to be a people controlled by mercy. Because here's the second thing it would be easy to do to be more aggressive in calling out the sins of homosexuality than you are at crucifying your own sin. To be so preoccupied with the sins of this age that we forget the sins of our lives. The very sins that aroused God's wrath to the degree that it took the sinless Son of God dying in our place to forgive them and to pardon us. 
Beloved, don't stop reading at verse 27. Read verses 28 to 32 and let that list sink in personally. God help us from being like the the Pharisee who Jesus talked about. He went to the the temple to pray and self-righteously thank God that he wasn't like all the the sinner riffraff around him or puffing himself up with his own righteousness. Well, friends, let us be like the tax collector who was so grieved over his own sin that he beat his breast and cried out, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's the reality we need to remember. You may not struggle with homosexual temptation, but every single human being on the planet is a sexual sinner of some type, including you. None of us are completely whole and sinless in our sexuality. None of us. We are all sexually broken. All of us deserve God's just wrath for our sexual thoughts and our sexual desires and behaviors alone, let alone the other types of sin that we read about that plague us. And yet we are here restored and forgiven and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Of all people, Christians ought not to look down upon our gay and lesbian friends. We ought to be the last people to call them names or to make jokes and be flippant about the judgment of God upon them. God help Redeeming Grace Church to be the type of place where a member of the LGBTQ community can walk in these doors and although they will not be affirmed in their sin, they will be loved in spite of it. Even though we won't hesitate to tell them the truth, we also won't hesitate to shower them with mercy, just as God so loved us. Number seven, understand the importance of the church. Understand the importance of the church. Friends, I'm convinced more than ever that the local church has a unique opportunity in this age to be a compelling witness to the gospel to the world around us, even in light of the things that we're discussing today in sexuality. You know, over time, I think the sexual revolution will produce a throng of refugees who are disillusioned by the empty promises of their idolatry. Churches like ours should be havens for refugees of the sexual revolution, a place where it's realistic and plausible to live even a celibate life in following Jesus. Why? Because they know when they come into the church with the body of Christ and the family of God, they will not be alone. They'll be loved and befriended and safeguarded by a family in the community of faith. Psalm 68.6 says, God settles the solitary in a home. How true that is, especially in the family of God. You know, following Jesus and denying the romance of homoerotic love It may produce a life of longing for you, friend, but it does not have to produce a life of loneliness. It very well may produce a life of longing, but it does not have to produce a life of loneliness. The local church is the place where singles and married and widowed are all valued and loved and cared for. Where godly, holy, intimate relationships with the same sex can flourish and bloom in appropriate ways. In a crowd this size, I can't imagine that there are not Christians here struggling with same-sex temptations and feelings. Our brother or sister, do not keep it to yourself because you're too ashamed to admit it out loud to someone. The elders are here for you. 
godly, mature believers are here for you to help and disciple you and counsel you in your struggle. We're not going to look at you like you have some green horn, you know, growing out the side of your head. No, these, <laughs> these temptations are very much common in this day and age. You have a family here that wants to help you follow Jesus no matter what your struggle is. Do not struggle in the shadows. Walk in the light because that's where God's mercy is found. Number eight, set your hope on a glorious future. Beloved, there is coming a day, there's coming a day, there's coming a day when this world will be set free from the death spiral of sin and judgment. Our Lord Jesus will return and he will make all things new. Right now we groan, as Romans 8 says, we groan inwardly as we wait our full adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We ache to be made new. We ache to be, to be free of our anger, right? We ache to be free of our jealousy and of our controlling spirit and of our sharp tongue. And yes, we ache to be free of our heterosexual and homosexual lust. We yearn to be free of the pangs of loneliness and loss. God promises us sanctification. But friends, God does not promise us total release from our weaknesses and temptations here in this life. It's not a promise. Some sins may plague us our entire lives until we see Jesus. But beloved, we will see Jesus. And in that moment, the sinful temptations and struggles that have hounded us our entire lives will evaporate in a moment of glory. The image of God shattered by the fall will be completely restored and all the struggles of this life will become a distant memory as we live with our God in a world where righteousness dwells and reigns. So friends, don't grow weary, right? Don't live your life with kind of an undercurrent of seething and sinful anger and resentment about the changes taking place in our culture around us and our society. The gospel is still the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, including the LGBTQ community. And this power of God is so powerful that it not only justifies us, it not only sanctifies us, the power of God and the gospel will glorify us. May God strengthen us to walk in holiness and faithfulness until that day. Let's pray. And Father, we, we ask that this type of passage might do its good work in our hearts. Lord, that it would sober us, that it would convict us, that it would encourage us even and, and remind us not only of the, the realities of your judgment, but the amazing realities of your mercy. Our Father, our sins, they are many. Your mercy is more. And Father, today, if there's anyone who is here, whether, whether they're struggling with the type of things that we're talking about today or whether they're just in their pride, still in their sins, oh Lord, I pray that they might be overwhelmed with their sense of their need for Christ and overwhelmed by your mercy through the work of your Son. Oh Father, may we glorify you not only as our Creator this morning, 
not only give you the glory you deserve for the things that you have made, but we would glorify you as our, our great Redeemer. The one who in Christ through your Spirit has rescued us. Oh, Father, we praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.